For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion mourn through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion Born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully vow. Him to the perfection of wisdom. Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy, the perfection of wisdom gives light unstained, the entire world cannot stain her, she is the source of light, and from everyone in the triple world she removes darkness, most excellent are her works, she brings light so that all fear and distress may be forsaken and disperses the gloom and darkness of delusion, she herself is an organ of vision, she has a clear knowledge of the own being of all dharmas, for she does not stray away from it. The perfection of wisdom of the Buddhas sets in motion the wheel of dharma. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the hymn to the perfection of wisdom. We dedicate this merit to... Our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha. Our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati. Our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma. Our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen. Our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu. The perfect wisdom, Bodhisattva Manjushri. May all the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas extend their compassion to the benefit and well-being of all sentient beings, and to our great abiding friend Paul Farmer. May he find his true place in Buddha's way. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, bodhisattva, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna, paramita. When he is ready, Brian Taylor will be giving tonight's talk. Thank you, and I wanted to, uh, can you all hear me okay? Yeah. I wanted to thank Tygen especially for this opportunity to speak, um, your generosity in sharing the speaking uh, opportunities with various people is, is really wonderful. Um, 
is something I've always loved about Ancient Dragon. Um, just to begin tonight, I, I wanted to acknowledge the situation in Ukraine. Uh, it's on all of our minds, I know, and it's just so disturbing, so distressing. Um, and so that um, m- many of you may know this already, but one of our Dharma brothers, Sidesh Mukherjee, is married to a Ukrainian woman named Svetlana, whose half of her family is still in Ukraine. And uh, they're very concerned, of course, and uh, communication is difficult. I really don't know anything more than that. But uh, please keep uh, Sidesh and his wife uh, uh, Svetlana in your in your thoughts. <clears throat> uh, it's good to see all of you. And um, Jason, I haven't seen you in a while. It's nice to nice to see you and and others as well. Um, tonight, I would like to talk about. Um, the title of my talk is Meet the Ancestral Teachers, which is a line from uh, Shittu's uh, Song of the Grass Hut, and um, as a kind of a subtitle, Going Beyond Reading. Um, and what I want to talk about is, is how most of us uh, read at least some Buddhist and Zen material. Um, and the contemporary stuff is pretty accessible. I mean, I I don't know how you approach that, but often with contemporary Buddhist and Zen writings, since it's written in our own time and culture, um, it's it's fairly easy to just read through it um, and retain whatever we retain. The the traditional material is uh, sometimes um, asks for a bit more study or reflection because of its density, because it comes from a different time and culture, um, sometimes because of its depth. You know, these these are texts that have withstood the test of time for a reason. Uh, it's because they're perhaps the, the deeper and the more um, significant of the texts um, of their time. And they have a kind of, at least for me, an evocative power. Um, and so the question for me is, is how... Uh, how does what we read of the Dharma, especially the traditional stuff, become absorbed in our lives? How does it become integrated uh, and realized? Uh, it's one thing to read um, something from a long time ago, something like uh, Hongja's Platform Sutra, and just read it through. But how do we take it in more fully? Uh, and I think uh, everybody may have a different way of doing that. And tonight, I'd just like to share with you one of the ways that's been very fruitful for me, not not as an example of something you might follow, but to maybe help you think a little bit about um, what is it that works for you. Um, and it may be just time, you know, we, we uh, are maybe the best way to absorb um, the, the Dharma is to just immerse ourselves in it slowly over time. And... Um, it kind of soaks in. And after a while, perhaps we, you know, a few years of that, we start to turn around and notice that um, things are different. Our perception, maybe our behavior, uh, our outlook, our mood, uh, maybe even our body. Uh, There are changes that take place. And I I really believe that, you know, that with that, that um, chant that we just read, Hymn to the Perfection of Wisdom, it, it talks about, Wisdom in a personified way, as if as if wisdom has a kind of life of its own, and I I really believe it does. Um, that there is something about it that um, works on us. Um, it's it's not something you know. Most of us in the contemporary world, especially in the West, are influenced to think in such a way that we're in control of everything. You know, we, if we want to learn a skill, why we take a class or we, we go online and, you know, watch the YouTube videos, or if we want to, um, whatever it is we have to do, it's up to us to apply ourselves and, and learn as much as we can. And I think there's some truth to that, but with something like the Dharma, it has a life of its own and uh, affects us in ways that we're not necessarily in control of. 
Our tradition itself uh, urges us to, as it says in the Song of the Grass Hut, meet the ancestral teachers and be familiar with their instructions. But our tradition also cautions us that it isn't in the words. Uh, one of the first sayings attributed to a Zen teacher, a Chan teacher in, in China, Bodhidharma, is a special transmission outside the scriptures, not depending on words and letters, directly pointing to the mind, seeing into one's true nature and attaining Buddhahood. And so there's this um, invitation to study, to apply the minds that we, that we have, but not to force it and uh, to allow something to take place um, and not get too wrapped up in the words or what it is we think we're learning. I think that sometimes study can be like a nourishing meal. You know, hopefully we eat a moderate amount <laughs> and we, we chew and we swallow it and then we sit and rest. And digestion happens in the dark, in the interior. We're not in control of the digestive process. I mean, our minds, our brains are not, our willpower is not in charge of the digestion process. The body takes over. And I think that that could be said for the Dharma as well. Uh, we don't have to force integration, digestion, realization of what it is we are exposing ourselves and immersing ourselves to over time. But there's always a temptation to stay at the table too long and overeat. You know, I mean, I found myself reading too much in, uh, at times or, or even in one sitting reading too much and not taking the time to just rest and let it let it absorb. Uh, as if as if kind of, you know, getting a lot of it, you know, get, eating a really big meal will be more nourishing somehow or staring at the plate intensely, staring at the words on the plate intensely. Uh, by doing that, we might really get it. Um, Huike, uh, Bodhidharma's disciple, said something that I've, has always stuck with me, and that is, he said, those who read books should look into them for a while, then promptly set them aside. Um, and so we're urged to um, study and then forget what we have learned. Uh, by in the sense of not trying to hold on to it, um, so it's a it's a light touch. What I want to do tonight is is share with you two different methods for study that is um, somewhat reflective and takes time um, to stay with shorter passages that um, where we just don't buzz through a hundred pages. You know we might read a paragraph and, and kind of work with it a bit. One of those, if wait, if you could pull up the uh, document titled Lexio Divina, I want to show you this just as a background uh, for my own spiritual training um, in the uh, Christian tradition um, as an example of how, you know, this is a, this, in, this business of how do we integrate sacred texts or ancient texts that have a lot of meaning for communities of people. That question is, is universal and every uh, spiritual tradition wrestles with it and finds ways of working with it. Lexio Divina uh, was developed by Benedictine monks in medieval Europe and, and um, a monk and abbot of the Grand Chartreuse Monastery in France, Guigo II, uh, wrote a document called uh, Ladder of Monks. And if you could scroll up a little bit, so we can see all four at once. And this, this is a method of, of prayer that leads or, or reading of scripture that leads through meditation, prayer into silent comp contemplation. And monks used it frequently. It's been used for centuries and it's still a very popular form of encountering uh, the word um, for Christians all over the, all over the world still uh, one of the most popular and uh, mo most of us who are not involved in Christian communities hear about prayer and we think it's just asking it, some kind of deity for favors. But this is this is something that millions of people have done and still do all over the world as well, a, a different approach. 
the first stage in this method of prayer. And this is all, you know, within a half hour or 45 minutes of, of uh, time of, of prayer for the person who's practicing it. They will take a passage from scripture. It might be part of a psalm or it might be um, a story from one of the gospels or even just a short saying. Um, um, and the person will, will read it. It's called the first step. It's called Lexio. Read the passage slowly, perhaps several times over, and just listen carefully to what is being said here and just focus the mind on that. And then after a few moments of that, to move into meditatio or meditation. And meditation in the, in the Western Christian tradition really means meditating on something, uh, like uh, imaginatively cogitating on something. And contemplation is really what many people who practice Eastern um, spiritual traditions think of as meditation. Contemplation is really the silent um, presence, which we'll get to in a moment. Meditatio is pondering the passage that one has just read. What is it saying and what, what stands out? Sometimes even using the imagination to free associate, uh, to look for connections in one's life. You know, you, you read something and you go, oh, my God, that, that, that reminds me of something right now that is happening for me. Or it, um, it brings to mind something of, of something else that I read or whatever. But there's a kind of a imaginative, creative process that goes on where you're sort of turning it over. It's not analytical. Um, it's not trying to uh, understand the, the history and all kinds of things about the passage. It's more imaginative. The third stage is moving to oratio prayer, which is um, if something came up in the process of the um, of the meditation, uh, then uh, one would might might form a kind of intention um, of prayer, and um, and 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 that would then move to to words or just a silent sense of. of um, of prayer. And the fourth pass, sec, uh, section of this is co- uh, contemplation or contemplatio, and that moves into silence uh, so that one has sort of been through something by exposure to a short passage. One eventually gets to the point of um, silence and kind of letting go of it and let letting it have its effect. And it, it, again, it gets back to what I said in the beginning that um, in this tradition, as I, I think is also true for the Dharma, um, there is a sense in which um, uh, it, it works on us. And this is allowing space for that to happen without being caught up in our thinking about it. Uh, so that's one tradition. And Wade, you can take that off the screen now and come back to our regular view, if you will. Um, and... I just wanted to share that with you because it's kind of interesting and there may be some parallels in Buddhist uh, tradition. I don't know, but, or maybe something that you kind of do naturally, you may move through that kind of thing. Naturally, you take something like um, a chant, like the perfection of wisdom that we did tonight or the song, the grass had, and you may, you may spend that kind of time with it uh, in some form um, that is useful for you. Um, But, um, Whatever approach we, t- approach we take, we're basically asking, what is, what is the meaning to which the words point? What is the, uh, what is the, the juice here? What is, what is the heart of this um, that, um, that means something to me in my life that I can use, that I can work with, that might illumine something? Uh, uh, and that's very different from a kind of intellectual analytical study, which set, definitely has its place. Um, but this is a, a, a more absor- absorption, uh, absorptive, is that a word, uh, kind of um, immersion in, in the uh, text. You know, the, the last week, Taigen uh, gave a wonderful seminar on Hangzhou, and um, he was talking about how um, he was urged at one point when he was doing the translating to... Um, spend more time with each of the practice instructions of Hangzhou before translating them. And he decided to take each one and sit with it in Zazen. Uh, and that's another example of, of the kind of process that I'm, I'm talking about. Well, 
The other thing I wanted to share with you is a way that I have developed kind of on my own um, working with it, it's it's really a journaling for myself, but it is in the form of verses or poetry uh, in response to texts. I began this; uh, it really kind of rose up organically. I didn't I didn't set out to do it. I didn't read about it somewhere and decided to undertake it. I had been reading for a couple of years uh, as much as I could. That was uh, Dharma talks given by what I think of as the pioneers, uh, the Japanese pioneers who emigrated to the to the United States and who uh, taught uh, beginning at the turn of the last century uh, through the 60s and 70s. Um, and uh, their Dharma talks are many of them are available in in book form. And I spent a lot of time just reading those very slowly over two or three years. And as I did that, I, I, I was copying uh, passages that struck me from their Dharma talks into documents in my computer. And that, that was one way for me to say, oh, what's really being said here? And to listen more closely than just breezing through it. Um, and over time, I, I started seeing patterns, of course, like I, I would take a, a, a teacher like uh, Dainin Katagiri uh, and I would have read a, a, a whole bunch of his Dharma talks in his books and taken, you know, 20 pages worth of quotes out of those talks and put them in a document, a category document for myself. And then I realized, well, there's, there's themes here that, that stand out to me. And I began to sort those. And then eventually what happened is I began to lift uh, passages that were sorted into groups and rearrange them. Uh, sentences, phrases, usually no longer than a sentence, uh, rearrange them into poetry of my own, but it's their words. And so, wait, if you could bring one up, or, or the first page of that other document up, that would be helpful. This is a... Um, a poem, uh, I call them collage poems because they're collages of the words of these teachers. And this is the words of Dainin Katagiri in his Dharma talks. Um, that is, uh, one, let me do one thing here. I've got it. My computer is being kind of funny right now. I need to close something so it won't keep coming up. Um, Okay, here we are. Wade, as I read this aloud, if you could scroll down a little bit as we go, that would be helpful. Up from the ground. In the deepest reaches of human life, there is a vague, disconsolate pain, a silent lamentation. Facing it is a kind of impasse where we cannot move an inch. There is nothing to say or do about it, only to sit down and touch it and wait. Finally, we say, please, please make me simple. Please make me free. When this happens, the one who is calling upon something is simultaneously what one is looking for. It is like a mother hen and her baby chick. The chick taps its shell from the inside, and the hen taps the shell from the outside. Walk! The baby chick is born. Penetrating this point gradually and deeply, something sneaks in, invading our life, just like spring water coming up from the ground, making us more alive. Even though we don't know what it is, we can feel it, because our presence and the presence of the universe are exactly in the same place. That is the point we are always seeking. This is called faith. Very naturally, even before we're conscious of it, the source of our existence penetrates us, like the wetness that soaks our clothes when we walk in the mist. Um, that's, if you'll keep it back, yeah, that's great. I'll do the next one in a moment. Now, obviously, it flows in a way that is different from if I just jumbled a bunch of different verses together from various talks, and that's because I did a little bit of editing as I went in order to make it flow as a poem. And I, and I know, as I did that, I probably changed some of Katagiri's original meaning. And in that sense, it was kind of a, a one-way collaboration. Um, and and it was, it's really my 
my words, but taken, taken his words and working with them. Well, after I had done this for quite a while with about a dozen different teachers um, and, and various poems for each one, I started getting really interested in studying uh, chronologically through the Chan literature, starting with pre-Chan uh, and then through Bodhidharma and the, the uh, six ancestors. Um, and then beyond that, uh, later, and I'm kind of in the middle of that right now, in the, the late Tang era, era uh, dynasty, looking ahead to the Song dynasty. And um, I'm not reading all of it by any means. There's way too, the literature is way too vast, but I'm finding texts that speak to me on first reading, and, uh, and I stay with those. And I do the same process of copying out um, passages and then later on uh, going through it and, and working on them as poems. But this time, however... When I was telling Tiger about it, he said, well, you should write your own poems, which was very intimidating. I mean, it's I, I, I've never done poetry really before all this. And um, it it helps me to think of it as a journal. <laughs> um, that's really what it is. And and, um, and so I, I began writing my own. Let's so let's go to the next one. Wade. this one is. Uh, after after reading Bodhidharma. <clears throat> and some of the texts that are available from that are that are purported to be his. <laughs> I don't know. Who is this standing before me? asked Emperor Wu. I don't know, responded Bodhidharma. Who is this speaking now? Who is this listening now? Better to not say, better to not even know. Better to directly encounter what is occurring. Sound, light, activity, atmosphere, the texture of all this rising together. And if you must, call all of this me, us, or this. Or better yet, be like Qingyan when he was asked, what exactly was Bodhidharma about? Qingyuan drew close, stood resolutely, paused, then whispered, remember this clearly. Better to steadfastly engage this I don't know than at the end of our life, like Emperor Wu, to feel deep regret in having encountered without encountering, in having seen without seeing. And the last one I want to, if you'll go ahead and scroll to the next one, um, was taken from uh, later Shitu, um, some of his, uh, well, mostly what we have of his is the um, Song of the Grass Hut and the um, Sandokai, the Harmony of Difference and Sameness. Um, and so this was done in, in response to spending time with, with those. An open window. We're warned about having goals like tranquility. That's just another idea of self, shabbily constructed, then falling apart. We're also told to relax completely, to stop working, to get free, to open our hands and walk innocent. This is not an ambition, a state to attain and maintain. It is an action we can remember to take, like opening a window on a fresh spring morning. If the gentle breeze on your face delights you for a little while, enjoy it. But soon, striving will commence anew, just keep returning now and then to the open window. Take a breath or two. That's all. Okay, thank you, Wade, for sharing those uh, on the screen. Um, they are in the chat room, or they're going to be uh, posted in there if you'd like to have any of that stuff, including the Lexio Divina uh, instructions. Um, I think you can download them. So, as I said, these are things I developed for myself as ways of going beyond uh, reading into uh, trying to absorb and, and doing it in a way, you know, I find myself struggling as I do this with the impulse to, to really try to get it, you know. If I just get the words right in this poem, then I'll know it <laughs> and I'll live it. And uh, it doesn't work that way. Uh, nevertheless, there's there's a deeper exposure that happens uh, to the material for me as I do this. And I, 
I love to write. I love words. And so this is a way that I use. Um, so what I'd like to move to is to discuss with you, how does this work for you? How, how do you move beyond a kind of intellectual reading of especially traditional material in Zen into something that um, may be more reflective or takes more time or, or how, how does, how does integration of the Dharma as it is articulated through the centuries, how does the integration of that happen for you? And as I said earlier, it might just be a matter of time, you know, it just sort of happens. Um, but I'm wondering if there are any intentional practices or ways in which you find that are useful or struggles that you have. Like I mentioned, the tendency to want to, you know, stare at the words on the plate as if that's going to make it happen or something. Whatever your struggle is with wanting to integrate the Dharma. So how does it happen and, and what do you do? And I'd love to hear from uh, as many of you as possible in this discussion. <clears throat> yes, Ken, you can mute, unmute yourself and speak. Ken, you raised your hand, right? You have to uh, unmute yourself. Okay, there we go. Yeah, I, I actually have... Um, uh, a similar approach to that that you've described. Um, I've taken excerpts from various Zen writings, um, which I then revisit in small portions before and after meditation. So, I, you know, I would I would take take a small excerpt, read through it, meditate, and then another small excerpt, and I. Have kind of break it up there. Yeah. Under, but the one, but that has raised a concern in me that those parts that I did not take, sometimes because I didn't fully understand it, or, or I suspect that I didn't fully understand it, I have this concern that uh, you know that that by leaving parts. Yeah. Of, of these writings behind, I've missed something that I might have gotten had I, you know. So that that's. I, I know I know what you mean. I mean I, I have left out a whole lot. I mean you obviously can't do the kind of thing I'm talking about with everything, and so you start with what sort of strikes you at the beginning, and that may not be as you said what is most important. So we just keep coming back to it and hearing different things at different times. Um, I'm wondering, Ken, I have a question for you as a follow-up. When you take, when you do a medit uh, sort of a reflective reading of a short passage before sitting meditation, do you find that your brain is thinking about what you just read during the meditation or do you kind of let go of that during meditation? I let go of it. Yeah. I let go of it and just, you know, meditate straight, you know, concentrating as I, as I would, if I had not, if I'd yeah. not read anything in the faith, essentially that, you know, that, that yeah. it has spoken to my mind and whatever processes. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think that that has worked because as you mentioned, after a passage of years, uh, I find that I, I have changed in ways that I can trace to certain particular teachings. Exactly. And that's that last step of the Lexia Divina I mentioned where you've done some meditation on a text, but then you really let go of it and just sit. What about others here? I believe Michael has his hand up. Yeah, Michael. <clears throat> well, I think in the song of Precious Mare Samadhi, the line, a silver bowl filled with snow, was the line that hooked me into Zen and mm. Zen practice. It, uh, I, I can taste that. <laughs> I can feel that. It's, and I, so what I find reading, because I, I love uh, exploring the recorded sayings literature as well, and Bodhidharma and Linji 
Hongzhou is amazing. And I, uh, there's, there's a, a physical sensation. There's like an emotion. It's when I'm reading, I'll read a lot. And then every now and again, there'll be passages that evoke a similar emotion sensation to what I can come across during meditation. I, I don't know if that's what samadhi feels like, if samadhi feels like something, or if it's just being blissed out and getting the happies, but whatever that is in the chest and the uh, upper arms, call it, it love and compassion for the entire universe. Um, but it feels really good. <laughs> and it's, in as much as it's another attachment uh, and, and probably not the point of practice, it's still a nice value add. And so when I'm reading something, uh, occasionally a line will evoke that or a passage, a paragraph will evoke that sense. And it's not so much of an intellectual, oh, I get it. You know, the, the absolute and the relative are the same thing. Uh, it's a, uh, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's much more embodied and, uh, more, um, well, e easier to meditate with without trying to think about or parse out. But I just, I try to take what I feel reading onto the cushion and, uh, which is, um, Taizan Meizumi Roshi had advice in that regard. He, when asked what to, what, what were good books to read about Zen, he said, anything that makes you want to put the book down and sit Zazen. <laughs> and good. That's good. So yeah. That's my take. Well, it's really great that you brought that up. Um, I think that it's, yeah, whether you call it samadhi or love or it doesn't, peace, you know, it doesn't matter what the word is. Um, it's that inspiration and uh, uh, encouragement to practice uh, and to take it into our lives. And, uh, and I think that that's obviously something that happens in a variety of ways, it, it can it can be while you're watching the the news about Ukraine, or it can happen uh, when you see a toddler or read it, read a passage like you did mentioned the one at the beginning of your comment, uh, or it can happen in zazen. Um, it's so. Thank you for sharing that. Yes, Tegan. Yeah, I really appreciated your talk a lot. And it's uh, in, well, maybe a less uh, organized way, a lot of what I do. And and the point of all the study that we can do is just, uh, as was just said, to bring you back to, to the cushion, to bring you back to practice. But uh, I, I did a practice period at Tassahara with Katagiri Roshi. And he talked a lot about digestion, which you ref mm. mentioned. Mm. And really... Um, not to figure out, but to digest what what arises in samadhi, but also the words of the ancestors, as you were talking about. So I I really appreciate your uh, your uh, way of doing that, the lectio divina, which I had never heard in those terms. But that's very much like uh, the, the process that, as I understand it, of working with texts or working with koans, looking at a particular passage and and uh, sitting with it and not trying to uh, figure it out and have some understanding. But I was also reminded in your talk of a passage um, from Dogen talking to one of his main disciples who was a nun named Rionen, and he said, do you want to know the essential teaching? And she said, yes. And he said, don't remember a single word I say. Mm. So, you know, sometimes years later, we might we might remember a phrase that a teacher said or something we read. And this is why people have gone back to the sutras and the, and the teaching stories for, you know, a thousand years more 
because we see it in new ways. So anyway, thank you very much for your talk. Your comment or that story um, reminds me of um, a funny experience. When I first started coming to Ancient Dragon um, and listening to your talks, Tagan, especially, um, you have a a way of talking that is um, not as linear as some public speakers. And um, I would come home from... Um, the time with the sangha and, and my wife would say, well, how was it? And she, she always wants to, how was the talk? You know? And, I, <laughs> and I'd say, well, it was great. And she, she'd say, well, what, what was it about? I, I kinda, I'm like, well, I, I don't really know. Uh, <laughs> I can't really, can't really say, but I, it was great. And it, it <laughs> and over time, those, uh, that exposure is effective. I mean, it, it affects something um, in a way that is perhaps uh, it's different than the intellect, which is another way of studying. Yes, Wade. In uh, college and grad school, I I studied English literature and I would get in trouble uh, in my papers for doing basically your first poem where I would have read any number of things and, uh, and all of those ideas would be swimming around in my head. And then I would compile basically a, a list of quotes and put the absolute minimum padding of my own word between the quotes and just be like, you know what I'm saying, right? Just f- figure it out. These quotes all relate to each other. Obviously that's my paper. Um, <laughs> putting, putting these things in conversation with each other. Um, it, it didn't really fly in academia. Uh, I had to do a little, little work to make myself more explicit, but uh, you know, as a poem that does work, right? Poems are, are um, being explicit is not their function. It's not their strength. Um, and, I, and I also think it's a wonderful way, a very Zen way to sort of approach the Dharma or, or a very Buddhist way, perhaps, that it's acknowledging that, that all Dharmas in the world are things in relation to each other and that, you know, the, the meaning in it, such as there is one, arises from the inner relationality amongst mm-hmm those things and um, to make it explicit is to lose some of the mystery um, to, to allow the things to relate to each other um, is a fuller expression of that, of that Dharma. So anyway, I, I appreciated uh, your, your poem uh, as practice, all of your poems. Well, thank you, Wade. Um, You know, you talk about the, um, interaction of dharmas uh, and the interaction of those various words that or phrases or whatever with each other in, in, in the paper that you used to write, the kind of paper you used to write and the kind of collage poem that I did. There's also, and maybe you meant this too, there's the interaction with the, with the reader, uh, the, the meditator, that there's something alive in the relationship uh, between it's not just like there's there's this meaning that they meant and it's there it is and this is true of any kind of literature I think but there's it the, it comes alive in the relationship between the one who is spending time with it and the text itself and the and the person who might have originally written it so and and it's going to be different at different times I mean if I went back into some of those texts ten years from now it'd probably come out very differently for me so. Thank you for bringing up that that interactive quality of it. <laughs> a delightfully um, postmodern approach to literature. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Nyozan. Uh, yeah, thank you, Brian, and uh, thank you the other people for their comments. Uh, you know, thinking this <clears throat> back to what Wade just said, you know, I was reminded of the passage in Genjo Koan, maybe just because I've been reading that today, but uh, 
you know, there's that line about not carrying yourself forward, but allowing things to come forward and realize themselves. And I, I think there might be sort of a parallel process with the different kinds of reading that you're talking about. I think that, you know, what you're describing is a way of letting passage, as it were, come, come forward of its own accord, as opposed to the kind of, you know, manipulation or even potential violence of a kind that you can inflict, inflict when you're trying to, you know, I want to understand this passage. So, oh yeah, you know, like that. That said, um, my own practice, you know, I've been, you know, you've uh, very, very generously shared some of your, um, some of this, the product of this work. And uh, I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, and I've asked myself, you know, or not, I mean, not rigorously, but, you know, I, I'm sort of like, hmm, maybe I should do something like that, um, which I never have. And, uh, I, and this gets me to the point of what you know, you're saying, well, how do you do it? And, um, one possible answer for that is that I don't because I'm not together enough to the way you framed it, form an intention in the reading. Rather, the way it seems to function for me, these passages, um, you know, I have, you know, there's, I, I read them like you, um, you know, over time, I've read them many, many times. And uh, I don't do anything particular with that. But what I find happens is that periodically, fairly regularly, um, particular passages, usually very short, a sentence or a phrase even, um, will just kind of come forward for me, um, yeah. and, and then be just present. You know, I mean, for example, when the first time I went on a long walk, you know, about halfway into it, one of the, one of these things happened and it just, it just stayed with me for, for weeks, yeah. um, in a really interesting way. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'll, take your advice on this. Maybe I should form sort of more intentionality around that because like I say, I really don't have that, but nonetheless, um, it does seem like some kind of uh, digested something will present itself for me. So anyway, thank you. I, I love what you brought up. I, I think that's true for a, a whole lot of us. Most of us uh, that something comes forward and uh, speaks to us. Um, Sometimes it's something very familiar or we thought it was familiar and we've, we've gone over it many, 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 many times over the years. I, I had the, the uh, I used to have a really funny experience sometimes. Um, uh, I, I served as an Episcopal priest for 30 years and um, preached a lot. And, you know, these passages over all those decades, these uh, stories, from scripture that you base your sermons on were very, very familiar to me. And I'd read them, you know, hundreds of times and I'd be sitting there <laughs> during the gospel reading, having prepared this sermon and on, on it. And I will, would hear a phrase and I would go, Oh, Oh my, Oh my God. I, I never heard that before. <laughs> Maybe I need to rip this up and, and do that instead. And it, it was astounding to me that something new could come out. And so, as you said, you know, whether it's the Genja Koan or something else, you've heard it many, many times, but it has the power to sometimes uh, a part of it jump out in a new way that surprises us. Uh, and that's why repetition is, is important, I think, with texts like these, especially the, the old ones that have stood the, the test of time. Yes, I'll get to. Thank you very much, Brian, for sharing this wonderful practice. Um, I think I first heard of that uh, Lexio Divina from uh, Kathleen Norris in a book called Cloister Walk. I don't know if you've read that, but it's really a beautiful book. It's a Benedictine practice, I guess. But it really resonated with me. I mean, since childhood, I think I was encouraged to memorize things that 
poems or verses. And I love, there's certain sutras that are very close to my heart. And I just, I've always chanted them, written them out, <laughs> contemplated. And even now, every night I read something before I go to bed from a sutra, usually. I mean, sometimes it's from someone else, but I find that, um, and sometimes it's, you know, maybe something from Dogen or Book of Serenity or something like that. But but there's something about, you know, spending a lifetime doing that that feels the kind of embodying, just even writing it out by hand. I'm a terrible typist. I don't know how I wrote a dissertation without knowing how to type, but I resisted it. So I write, I have notebooks, you know, and I think, gosh, you know, maybe I should throw these away because what's going to happen when I die? People are going to find these like mad copyings of of sutras. But I I find that it, and then of course, sometimes a poem or an image comes up and, you know, I might write that down. And then I think, oh, that's kind of interesting. Maybe I should remember that, but I always forget it. And then I come across it 20 years later and I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah like old friends. So it's, it's, they, they feel very supportive and how that integrates into life is throughout my day. I often have these experiences where a word will come up like mm-hmm. today, this word Kuyo, which is offering or offering sustenance, something like that. It came up like just when I was walking around and there's something about like, Oh yeah, our life is an offering. So, so I think this is how this stuff percolates, at least for me, Yeah, but yeah. it's all spontaneous. Nobody ever told me to do it. So thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> well, you know, in your, some of your Dharma talks uh, or in other settings, you um, will frequently bring up a poem and, um, and, and what you've raised is the, uh, Something that I didn't even mention that that is obvious to me now, and that is that our our tradition for uh, all these thousands of years has been rooted in memorization and chant, uh, and and that's that's the primary way that historically um, bodhisattvas have uh, done what we're talking about tonight is is they've repeatedly chanted things that they have memorized and um that's a, a powerful thing to do that you you mentioned you do and it's, it's another way that we can um, encounter these things i mean i will add of course that that was the way the original suttas were transmitted is through this oral way but so much is written even these dialogues in koans and more recent, they're very interactive. And so the Dharma comes up in that, you know, Buddha walked around engaging people and talking. And then all of a sudden these kind of verse descriptions of those encounters were passed down to us. And so I I find it very, you know, it can seem like a solitary practice, but it feels like it connects so deeply with something very profound. So I, I really am happy that you're raising this, Brian. How are we doing on time? When do we usually wind this down? I'm not, I'm not trying to cut anybody off, but I don't want to overextend. I, I believe we have time for one or two more comments, perhaps. Okay. Okay. We're in no rush. Yeah, Douglas. Uh, thanks a lot, Brian. I, I know you've been, as you said, been reading a lot of Zen stuff from the Tang Dynasty and the Koan literature, things like that. And I love those stories myself. I don't, you know... Um, I think we, well, recently we talked about how sometimes it just seems like there are mountains of them very, in a way, sort of repetitive, saying the same things over and over again, and maybe in different ways, but I do love them. I don't study them, and I have done koan practice. I don't do that now, although something a little similar, maybe in giving a Dharma talk, I, I think they can be helpful just to think through our practice, and I'll usually read the koan, especially if it's a koan from the Book of Serenity or the Blue Cliff Record, where there's a lot of literary stuff going on and the stories can be a little more elaborate, and just do a sort of traditional reading to 
understand what's going on on a literal basis, and then uh, from a literary basis, what are the metaphors going on? And oh yes, this is clearly talking about Buddha mind, and this is talking about you know uh, um, conventional reality of things versus the universal versus the uh, particular, that sort of thing. But um, to really, at the end of the day, to make sense of it, I, I do, I sort of keep reading it and over and over, I tend to memorize it, which is also a part of traditional koan practice, but I really do something really uh, when I'm preparing a Dharma talk about a koan and really trying to get into it, I do a lot like what Ken suggested of reading it beforehand and maybe coming back to it before Zazen and coming back to it after Zazen and really trying to see how it is speaking about and speaking to me from the experience of Zazen, just that experience of being here with that open spacious mind in this open, concretely this in this open spacious world and I find that that's a very helpful way to get into it, that the, that the koans uh, are, um, you know, they're frequently dialogues and people taking different standpoints, but they're all speaking to what co- comes up in Zazen. And um, I find that to be very fruitful to help to understand what's going on in, in those stories. Um, rather than try and think of it, oh, this is talking about the absolute, and this is talking about the particular, it's talking about, oh, this open experience of being here alive in this situation, in this open situation, and then the particular object or phenomenon, whatever that is, within that situation and that that kind of dynamic is always going on in the koans it they come much more alive when you see them as speaking to that experience right now yeah yeah sitting so it's not really a method but it's sort of it's an it's a it's an approach Yeah. yeah well you're really talking about the same thing it's how do I make this my own or how do I, yeah. how does it, how is it realized? Where the, there's always the, so what question, you know, <laughs> so what now? Anyone else that maybe hasn't had a chance to speak yet? would like to. Yes, Jerry. Um, when I did koan practice in the past, oftentimes I would take a line from the koan and, I would sit with it and I would pretend I was chewing and digesting the words. And somehow that physical movement, I don't know, it helped me. And it sort of, it sort of, um, it helped me to incorporate somehow the sense or the feeling into my everyday life. And I would notice most koans I worked on, something would happen in my life and I would say, Oh, that's like the, I mean, that's like the koan. Events would happen in my life that would bring me back to say, oh. And, uh, yeah, there was something about that chewing chewing the words and digesting them that, that helped me. I, I had a colleague one time who uh, lived in, still lives in North Dakota and has some cattle. And um, she she talked about cows chewing on their cud. And she said, Alexio Davina is basically chewing on your cud. And, you know, sort of like just taking something into your day and kind of just like turning it around and just maybe a word or two or a phrase or something. Yeah. And then, Joe, you had some comment or a question. Yes, I don't really. Um, it was a wonderful talk and wonderful comments. I don't really have a, anything to say about the topic, but I do have a question uh, about a name that came up in the acknowledgments. Uh, wait to mention uh, Paul Farmer. Is that the doctor? Yeah, that's one of his books. Yeah, uh, is he? Is he? He just died unexpectedly. Um, they don't really know why in Africa at a clinic that, or a hospital that he had founded, um, and he was only sixty-two or something like that, or sixty-five. 
Okay. Given, given the risks he took, it's, it's, uh, it's miraculous he made it that this long. It sounds it sounds as if it was a natural occurrence. He just his heart just gave out unexpectedly. Very very brave fellow. Very um, yeah, more beautiful guy. Thanks. Just wanted, that's all I wanted to know. All right. Well, thank you all very much. This has been really great. I've been enjoying talking with you about this important subject.